0: Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder and partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. Uh, We're here today to talk about uh new consensus mechanisms uh among other things. Uh and I'm here with Haseeb Kureshi of, of Metastable and Aparna Krishnan of Mechanism Labs. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be on.
1: Excited to be on this podcast.
0: Awesome. Let's uh let's start with uh some introductions and how we got uh you know acclaimed to introduce to the topic. Uh Haseeb perhaps you could start and then Aparna.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I first got into blockchain, I guess it was a couple a few years ago when I first started really delving into how proof of work actually worked and Nakamoto consensus, the longest fork rule. And, you know, this is this is also around the time that I was really delving into a lot of traditional computer science. And the idea that there was a different way to achieve consensus in this massive distributed system that's as large as the entire world. That was just a mind blowing idea to me at the time. And uh, although I didn't quite grasp the significance that cryptocurrencies were going to end up playing in my own life, um, I, I I kind of really got the idea that there was something new going on here. I didn't quite appreciate how new they were until I started doing more and more research into the way that consensus mechanisms end up enabling uh, most of what blockchains are really about. So I've been looking more deeply into blockchain consensus protocols over the last like year and a half since I've gotten deeper and deeper into crypto. And uh, I, I just find this area completely fascinating. And there's so much work being done right now that's absolutely completely new groundbreaking research. And uh, I'm really interested to see where it goes.
1: That's really cool. That's that's quite interesting. Um, I got into the crypto space because I cared a lot about privacy and cryptography. Um, and I saw blockchains or Bitcoin back then as an application of cryptography. Um, and it was quite amusing to me how, um, the Bitcoin paper was not like academically rigorously crazy to read or anything, but uh, it was this very, very simple protocol, which was so revolutionary. Um, and yeah, so that was my introduction to the blockchain space. From there, I went on to teach, um, a couple of classes at Berkeley about blockchain. And then I taught a few executive education programs, um, and in all of this, I realized that a lot of people were trying to build applications on top of a blockchain that was by no means ready for any of these applications. Um, and I wanted to do my part and make an impact, which is how I got into blockchain research, um, because I realized I was in this very uniquely positioned place where I had all this knowledge about blockchains um, from teaching people and now it was my time to actually go out there and build it.
2: That's that's awesome. So, uh let's to just kind of dive in. I think the the easiest place to start in talking about consensus is I mean a lot of people who are not as technically versed in the computer science won't necessarily even know what we mean by consensus. So, probably the place to start is the granddaddy of blockchain consensus, which is the consensus mechanism in Bitcoin. So Aparna, would you mind like just kind of briefly going through how Bitcoin achieves consensus? And most people are probably familiar with the story, but just really briefly, so we kind of uh, ground the rest of this conversation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, at a very high level, um, when people say consensus, I just like to think of it as multiple nodes coming to agreement on a common view um, of the world. Um, So in Bitcoin, The process of coming to consensus is basically through something called mining. Um, and the idea is that everyone is trying to take part in this race and the person to first finish solving this puzzle gets to add their block to the blockchain. Um, the reason there's a race is so that it makes it difficult for any one person to like create multiple identities off themselves. Um And add to the blockchain very easily. Yeah.
2: Right. So uh, another really interesting way to think about proof of work I found is that, uh, you know, fundamentally the way that you, the easiest way to think about achieving consensus um, is if you look back to like some of the original papers that were written on uh, like Paxos, which was the very first uh, fault on consensus algorithm, uh, the, the original way that people think about, okay, how do you get a bunch of nodes to agree on something? The easiest way to do it instead of having a bunch of people talk to each other and kind of collectively decide okay we're all going to vote for one thing, the easiest thing is to just have a leader and the leader decides what is the next thing that we're all going to agree on
0: mm-hmm. um, and
2: so this is also known as um, uh, leader based replication or state machine replication based on some leader and bitcoin the the you know the whole stuff that the rigmarole about mining and this proof of work and this uh uh you know randomly generating new blocks based on someone having the smallest hash and so on um All that really does is this random leader election. So every single block, randomly someone gets to be the leader for one block and they get to say, here are the next transactions in the blockchain. And it was a totally new way of deciding how a consensus protocol could pick a new leader. Uh, uh, like for every single interval of a new block, a new person gets to decide what happens in the Bitcoin ledger based on Whoever can first solve this mining puzzle, uh, and that's that, that's a that's a really really cool idea. Um, so the now everybody's sort of familiar with proof of work if they're familiar with blockchains, but there are other consensus mechanisms that are now becoming more popular. Uh, people have probably heard that Ethereum is transitioning to proof of stake. So let's talk a little bit about proof of stake as being the alternative to proof of work. So at a high level, what's the story on on proof of stake? How would you describe it to somebody who you know is familiar with proof of work but doesn't quite understand the mechanics of how? That turns into proof of stake.
1: Yeah. So in proof of work, the idea is basically you want to do this thing of one CPU, one vote. In proof of stake, you basically want to give people voting power proportional to the amount of coins that they decide to lock up. Um, and the idea is that if you're a stakeholder of the system and you hold a lot of tokens um, and you're locking it up, you're incentivized as an economically rational person to act. Honestly, because if you don't, the value of your tokens goes down. Um, and I think what's very interesting about proof of stake to me is like in Bitcoin with proof of work, um, you have this ability to uh, use computation as a way of preventing um, someone cr- from creating multiple identities. In proof of stake, you're essentially using um someone locking up their tokens as another way to prevent them from creating multiple identities of themselves um but this essentially also gives a lot of flexibility to the protocol designers um in terms of like how they want to design rewards and punishments um like in bitcoin or any like proof of work system you have some sort of like a default punishment um in terms of like wasted computation Um, if someone's block doesn't get added to the blockchain, they in a sense get penalized. But what's very fun about proof of stake is, um, you have flexibility as a protocol designer to like have these punishments if someone's block doesn't get added to the blockchain or maybe just even do away with those punishments. Um, and in a way I see it as a very, uh, powerful economic structure that you're bringing in in addition to a distributed system. Um, Yeah. So
2: one question a lot of folks will probably have is why, why transition to a a proof of stake based system? What's the, what's the advantage potentially of proof of stake over proof of
1: work? Yeah. So a lot of, a lot of people obviously like are focused on um, building systems that are not just more efficient, but also don't necessarily like destroy humanity as a whole. And with proof of work, if you think about it, um, just Bitcoin mining, is, uses up as much energy as Iceland as a country. Um, and that's a substantial amount of energy. Um, now translate that into like all of the proof of work chains that ever exist. Uh, and if you want to have some sort of like a global scaling economy on a blockchain, That's going to be a very substantial amount of energy that we use. Um, So you obviously need a more like energy efficient solution and proof of stake is a much more environmental friendly energy efficient solution than proof of stake. Um, The other issue with proof of work is because you're in a a sense using um, buying safety or like Preventing people from creating symbols by making them do work and buying time buying time is kind of like the opposite of having a lot of transactions in a second, which means you're also having a lower scalability in a sense um with proof of stake, you could scale much quicker to what the uh what the network latent uh, what the network throughput is um and another thing in like i guess this is very specific to bitcoins proof of work is the concept of no finality so once a block is added to the blockchain the myth that everyone told you that the blockchain is immutable is is just a myth um because maybe china is mining a longer blockchain that no one knows about and the moment they release it it is the longest blockchain which means all the blocks forever that were ever created get deleted or are are no longer the correct worldview Um, and maybe all the transactions that we've been making for the past few years um, never actually happened, which is a very scary reality to me. Um, But with proof of stake, if you use some sort of a a BFT hybrid, um, you have the potential to add in finality.
2: So that, that brings us to um, an interesting set of questions. So you mentioned a, a lot of reasons why proof of stake gives you a lot of properties that are not possible in proof of work. One of them, uh, having guaranteed finality in a proof of stake based system that's sort of a BFT style proof of stake system, as opposed to probabilistic finality, meaning that it becomes less and less likely given certain assumptions that blo- you know Bitcoin is going to be reverted, but it's never 100%. Um yeah. there there are other elements of of the trade-off space when thinking about consensus protocols. Most people when they think about okay how what does this consensus protocol do they think of transactions per second. Uh, mm-hmm. do you think this is the right way to think about consensus protocols and what other dimensions would you consider uh when when evaluating okay what's the trade-off space of of these consensus protocols?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So I do think that um so a lot when I got into research in the blockchain space or like when I was first trying to develop an app on the blockchain, um, it was hard for me to choose what consensus protocol to build on top of. Um, because all you hear on social media is a lot of like marketing academic language or a lot of what you hear, even when you're at conferences, is like this marketing academic language, um, where people, try to sell you their consensus protocol rather than present to you their consensus protocol. And I think it's quite false to think that there is an objectively best protocol, but there are objectively best consensus protocols for specific use cases. Um, And one of the reasons we wrote this paper um, on comparing the different proof of stake protocols was basically to help people think about how to Choose what protocol is best for their specific use case if they're a developer, or if they're a researcher, basically think about um what's already been done and what are good points for them to start work on um so I think like when people are considering consensus protocols um one major question to think of is who is your target audience if you're a developer um like is it going to be enterprises? Is it going to be um, consumers? Um, do you want, like, the people to be able to write to the blockchain? Do you want uh, people to just be able to read from the blockchain? What properties of the blockchain do you want? Um, is, I think, a very, very important question to ask. Um, and basically understanding where your use case lies on the spectrum of, like, permission to permissionless is pretty important in like figuring out what underlying consensus protocol you want to use. So I think a lot of very, very like important properties about these consensus protocols will then come into picture when you think of comparing them. Like for example, um, if you're trying to get enterprises to use your um, maybe financial use case, you're trying to create an enterprise of banks Um, something you might want to consider is, uh, 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 or something you might not want to consider is like if an economic incentive exists in the, um, in the underlying blockchain protocol, because you don't necessarily need economic incentives for these big consortiums to run full nodes. Um, they're already incentivized by external factors to run full nodes just because they want to store all the data. Um, and versus on the other hand, if you're trying to create like a global payment system, which is what Bitcoin is, um, and you want to give everyone the ability to join, um, and leave your protocol, um, and be a participant and have the ability to add blocks to your blockchain, then you do need a very, very strong economic incentive. Um, so I think that's definitely a very important factor that most people miss out on um i think other important factors are like thinking through what kind of adversarial model you want your protocol to be able to defend against if it's of course like a consortium of enterprises running it you can have like a weaker adversarial model versus if you're having everyone in the world be part of your protocol and everyone joining and leaving, um, and that's kind of what you need for your specific use case, then of course you would need to be able to defend against much, much stronger adversaries. Um, even, even in thinking about that, you want to like consider who has the ability to read from the blockchain, who has the ability to write to the blockchain. Um, uh, another parameter to just think about often is, um, your network. Uh, synchrony assumptions so if you're having um, a blockchain being run within an organization maybe there are fiber optic cables and fiber cables like connecting all these different nodes within the organization um, which makes your internet connection very fast and you can have a synchronous protocol maybe but on the other hand like if you're like Bitcoin and if you want a global payment system, you might only be able to assume like a weaker synchrony model, which is like partial synchrony or um, asynchrony. I I mean a stronger synchrony model. You, you might need to consider Can you define
2: real like quick. That. What do you mean by a uh, synchrony model, asynchrony, synchrony?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So synchrony is basically uh, the amount of time it takes for messages in the network to reach um, different participants. Um, and, like if you have a very weak synchrony model it just means um you have like some sort of known upper bound on time and if the strongest synchrony model is like um there's no concept of upper bound on time at all Messages so in other so words
2: weak. right so if i'm if i'm hearing that correctly in other words uh having a very uh you know assuming a synchronous model basically means that you're assuming that every single message is going to pass through the network in a certain amount of time, and if that ever happens not to be the case, then the guarantees of your protocol break down
1: yeah right? basically yeah got
2: it, got it. so you so you're making assumptions about the network, and presumably if you have a really crappy network like the entire internet, uh, which yeah. is much more flaky than like a LAN inside of a, an enterprise, uh, then you need to make weaker assumptions about you know how long it takes for messages to propagate through the network before you're protocol starts breaking uh
1: yeah so if you're using the internet uh you you'll need to make um yeah uh, stronger assumptions because uh okay i guess i guess i'm like mixing up words here um when i say uh the model is strong i mean um like asynchrony is strong as a model but has less assumptions um so it has weaker assumptions i guess just to not confuse views. uh Viewers
2: got it, got it, yeah, yeah, cool. So, okay, so that's so that's very interesting. So, uh, hearing all that, I, I've, I got a sense of some of the trade off space. But, why, how would you convince me not to just pick the protocol that has the highest transactions per second?
1: Well, I guess, um, if you wanted to just pick a protocol that has the highest transactions per second, um, Facebook, Google, Apple are already doing that. Um, why are you? designing a blockchain to do that because the way I see blockchains is or any sort of decentralized technology is they were developed not for the sake of a technical improvement in the sense of like higher performance. Um, they were rather developed with the purpose of, of fighting something that was legally not permitted. Um, so like censorship resistance is an example. Um, so if you're trying to build a use case on the on just a protocol that has the highest transactions per second, um, why are you even using a blockchain?
2: Fair point. Fair point. yeah okay. so uh, let's let's dive in. So we talked about proof of stake from a very high level. Um, and of course, people are familiar with the division between proof of work and proof of stake. Now, proof of stake is often mistaken as being itself a specific consensus protocol, but of course it's not. It's a it's a category of consensus protocols. Um, so can you kind of delineate what's the difference between talking about a consensus protocol and talking about proof of work and proof of stake as civil resistance mechanisms? Um, can you just draw that out for the audience?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think when people say proof of work as a consensus protocol, they mean it's a civil control mechanism. Um, plus it has some other thing which helps people come to agreement. So um, they actually mean the part that comes to agreement plus the part that prevents people from creating multiple identities of themselves. Um, when they talk about a family of consensus protocols, I guess these terms are used like interchangeably and are often very confusing, but um, usually when people talk about proof of stake, um uh, for family of consensus protocols um I, like the way I like to think about uh consensus protocol is there are two parts one is like um the part where you decide who is participating um and how they're coming to agreement, and the second part is like how do you decide like how do you prevent these people from Um, creating multiple versions of themselves, which is a civil control part. Um, and the, the difference between proof of work and proof of stake as civil control mechanisms is just that proof of stake uses people locking up coins and proof of work uses this computational power. Um, but I think where it gets interesting is, um, like when people say proof of work is a consensus protocol, they actually mean Proof-of-work as the uh, civil control mechanism plus a longest-chain rule, um, which is essentially what Bitcoin uses, or some sort of ghost protocol rule, which is what Ethereum uses. Um, And when people say proof-of-stake is the family of consensus protocols, they often mean proof-of-stake as the civil control mechanism, and they mean that um, there's some PBFT or something else. Maybe it's, again, like... uh, longest chain rule, um, which is used as the coming to agreement part.
2: Right. So I think people people often conflate proof of work with the longest chain rule, where in fact, it is technically possible to create a, uh, a proof of stake system that uses the longest chain rule and to use a proof of work system that doesn't use Nakamoto consensus. And of course, that's unlikely to happen. Um, but let's let's kind of go deeper into the details of Consensus protocols themselves, and and maybe that'll help uh, elucidate some of this area for some of our listeners. So, you wrote this paper, a meta-analysis of alternative consensus protocols, along with uh, some of your colleagues at Mechanism Labs. Um, so, tell us what, what were you trying to accomplish with this paper? What's the uh, what's what's the story here?
1: Uh, so when when we got into the blockchain space, um, it was definitely hard for us to um, figure out like what incentive model we wanted to build or what incentive model we wanted to create. So the first step we wanted to do is understand what's going on in the blockchain space. What's all the developments so far. Um, And so one way we did that was using the uh, meta analysis paper. But as we were going through it, something else we did realize is that it's very hard for Newcomers to the blockchain space to understand what's objectively the best protocol for them to use if they're a developer, what's objectively like a good protocol for someone to invest in, um, if they're like new to the space and just trying to understand it, or what are good starting points for people to just start thinking about research. Um, and what we realized is if someone within any of these organizations created a framework, um, it wouldn't be neutral and it wouldn't necessarily like depict what the ideal framework looks like. Instead, if we created such a framework, it would be very, very like helpful to not just DAP developers, but also new researchers. Um, and also it would just be a great way to map out this knowledge space.
2: Got it. So uh, as you go through the paper, <laughs> you, you start by describing some of some of the properties of traditional consensus. Before you go into blockchain consensus, and I think that's a good place to start, so describe to me kind of the properties of traditional consensus protocols so before any before you know the Bitcoin white paper and all that um what do these consensus protocols look like? what were their properties you know you you mentioned uh, paxos and p b f t um yeah. and I think you also mentioned raft in the paper but uh, just at a high level, what do those protocols look like
1: yeah, so um I think one very, very like nice difference between traditional consensus protocols and um, uh, blockchains is that traditionally you had the ability for multiple nodes to come to agreement. With Paxos, you kind of had this ability, if, if such that like even if one of these nodes um, goes offline permanently, your system can still come to agreement, um, which is basically this thing called crash. Uh, fault-tolerating algorithm uh, with PBFT, you had this additional property whereby um, even if nodes acted arbitrarily, so not just went offline, but actually they like, controlled the network and started um, messing up on um, message delivery in the system, your system could still come to agreement if up to like um, a third of these nodes were malicious. Um, which is where like PBFT came into place. But what none of these systems accomplished was the ability to um, have nodes that moved in and out of the system. So this ability to handle churn. So in traditional consensus protocol, um, you don't, you kind of like need to know who is part of your um, consensus process at the start. Uh, and you can't handle this, huge fluctuation of nodes in and out of the process versus um, what Bitcoin did is basically come out with this process whereby um, nodes can now move in and out, go offline and online as they choose, in addition to just um, being Byzantine or like have crash faults. And I think that's where this whole like permissionless, property comes in when you start talking about blockchains.
2: So tell me a bit about the scalability of these traditional consensus protocols.
1: Um, Well, one thing is that if you tried to do PBFT at a very large scale and like everyone sent messages to everyone, um, that would definitely not, that would be very complex as a system um, and would not necessarily like give you exactly what you wanted in terms of scalability. Um, But if you could have it such that you had a leader, um, which jumped in and did the talking, um, then in a sense, you kind of um, made the, made the same like system more scalable. So although like Paxos and PBFT were proposed in a certain way, uh, the way that they were actually built and used was oftentimes by not necessarily like reelecting leaders all the time, but by um, reelecting leaders only when needed, in order to have more scalability, in a sense.
2: I see. So how how you know if if we imagine that we were to try to run. Paxos or PBFT at an internet scale for a very very large system. Um, my understanding is that they, they, you know, neither of those systems would really scale, especially not PBFT. You
1: Jeff yeah, you definitely would not want to do that um, under any circumstance. Um, yeah,
2: right. But a but a unique property of you know uh, a proof of work and the longest uh, longest chain rule is that although blockchains are slow, my understanding is that the the scalability of the blockchain is actually invariant to the number of people who are mining on that blockchain. So you can have 10 people, you can have 1000 people, you can have a million people, and it runs just as quickly. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that is correct. Um, And I think the unique invention there is like, with proof of work or with Nakamoto consensus, you have this ability to find just one or two or maybe like three people in a round who might come out and propose a block. Um, And then everyone just gossips that block to everyone else Um, versus like having a multi round discussion with multiple people um, on what next block to add to the blockchain. It's just like, Oh, I added a block. You just accept the block. There's no more communication beyond that. Right.
2: So on the proof of stake side uh, in your paper, there are a number of different proof of stake systems that you analyze. So that includes Tendermint, uh, Thunderella, Algorand, Casper FFG, Casper CBC, which are two of the Casper variants for Ethereum, um, and Definity as well. Um, so I think a, a good place to start might be to talk about Casper, since of course that's the Ethereum proposed uh, uh, protocol for transitioning to proof of stake. Um, so can you can you just describe a little bit uh, what's what's the story of Casper? Or why are there two of them uh, for people who are not familiar with the Ethereum uh, transition to proof of stake?
1: Yeah. Um, so I think, like, um, Casper is, is, they're, they're, to my understanding, um, Vitalik and Vlad decided to take two different approaches, um, to coming, to designing, like, proof-of-stake protocols, which is why you have two Caspers, uh, the Friendly Finality Gadget and CBC, um, correct by construction, um, and actually, what I realized only after, like writing this paper was that cbc is not a protocol it's more an approach to designing um what a very like consistent system would look like or or, uh, what a safe system would look like um so having cbc and uh sort of like analyzing it in this framework does not make sense because cbc is its own framework of what ideal, uh, safety looks like. Um, on the other hand, FFG is like this, this very, very interesting approach where you don't necessarily want to leave everything about proof of work. Um, so you want to have some sort of hybrid between proof of work, uh, and, um, add this finality measure into proof of work. So what minimal changes can you make to proof of work? Um, but ensure that you have finality so that iceland is not mining a secret blockchain that can throw uh, take everyone by surprise tomorrow morning
2: so so to be explicit then it sounds like for starting with casper ffg so casper ffg is sort of an overlay on top of what's currently happening on ethereum which is proof of work and the longest chain rule uh and essentially what this does is when you say it adds finality what you mean is that uh, normally proof-of-work can be reverted arbitrarily far if someone mines enough blocks on another chain. Uh-huh. But with FFG, there will be certain blocks that are considered final, and these blocks can't be reverted no matter what. Um, but it's not every block. It's every 50 blocks or 100 blocks or, or whatever. Is that is that roughly correct?
1: Yeah, something like that.
2: Okay. So, so then they ask you this. So we say that. What happens if everybody decides to... Transition, you know, w- w- what actually happens? In what way is that final, if somebody mines a longer proof-of-work chain that has more work and it, and it violates one of the, you know, sort of skips over one of these uh, finality checkpoints, what happens?
1: Um, well, the way they describe it in their paper or um, the way the community has recently been talking about it is if someone does uh, do something like that, they get slashed um, or punished for actually doing that um but uh the slashing conditions i think are like still in work
2: so to, when you say they are slashed it's not the miner who mined those blocks who get slashed but rather uh, the, the validators who who agreed that that block was valid
1: yeah the, the proof of stake uh validators get slashed like whoever like double signs i guess gets slashed
2: right so that would only happen the next time that they f- try to finalize a block and right? uh-huh. so that would happen Fifty or 100 blocks into the future right?
1: Yeah, yeah, um, and the assumption is that like if, for example, you just finish finalizing uh, these fifty blocks, now, if a miner tried to create another blockchain right from the Genesis, um, none of the validators should technically like finalize their blockchain, so it just doesn't have the ability to grow beyond fifty blocks because for it to start growing beyond fifty blocks, it first has to be finalized. Um, before it can grow
2: right so i understand why ethereum wants this as it transitions to an entirely proof-of-stake system but in and of itself does casper ffg plus proof of work underneath it let's imagine that 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 ethereum would never do transition to pure proof of work what's the advantage of this why do we want this doesn't this just add more complexity and more edge cases
1: i think it's superior because it adds this property of finality Um, it like, I guess when designing a protocol, you don't necessarily want, uh, to, to rely on the community stepping in when things go wrong as much as possible. So if something like Iceland mining the longest blockchain happened, um, then you would kind of need community to step in and say, um, hey, we're actually not going to go with that longest blockchain, even though it follows the longest chain rule and all of that, because um, as a community, we decide against it. Um, and I think when you have to bring in external factors and bring in this sort of external discussion, uh, that's a lot more overhead than just dealing with it within protocol. So even if it means adding a few more edge cases, uh, I think the concept of finality is quite powerful and hey it, it means a blockchain is immutable doesn't have to be a myth anymore
2: fair enough so let's then let's then talk about tendermint so tendermint one of the very first uh formally specified blockchain proof of stake consensus protocols tell me a little bit about how tendermint works and what some of its properties
1: are um so i think what's quite interesting about Tendermint is. Um, I think on the whole list of protocols, um, I say list of protocols because I consider CBC more an approach, not a protocol. It's the only thing that chooses, um, consistency over availability in the case of a network partition. Um, and I think that's actually quite an important property if you're building some sort of a financial or payment system. Um, so Tendermint basically, um, takes PBFD, modifies it to have proof of stake as a civil control mechanism uh, and scales it up to being something that blockchains can use. Uh, But the most unique thing about Tendermint is that finality property.
2: Got it. And where is Tendermint used?
1: Um, Well, as of now, if you ask me where any of these protocols are used, I don't know because I've not seen use cases for any of them apart from Bitcoin.
2: Got it. But I believe Tendermint is, is intended to be used in, in uh, Cosmos. Oh, right, yes.
1: Right? As an interoperability uh, protocol. Yes.
2: Right. Um, so then there, there, you also analyze a, a couple of uh, sort of newer, sexier, um, you, know, right, right, you know, fresh off the presses consensus protocols like Thunderella, Algorand, Dfinity. Um, and so what would be I think what would be nice is just to go through. I know that each of them are actually pretty involved. To explain it in full so we, we won't even try but what <laughs> we will do is sort of give a you know two sentence kind of zen koan that sort of vaguely describes what the way each of them differ from each other is that are you game for that
1: yeah I'm down
2: okay so uh give me give me the two sentence version of Thunderella
1: um okay well Thunderella is basically when everything is um good uh let's have this one accelerator, be the proposer. Um, and when malicious things start happening, you fall back onto a slower blockchain.
2: Okay. So we got fast lane, slow lane.
1: Yeah. Fast lane, slow lane.
2: Okay. And uh,
1: it, yeah. The, ba- uh, the basic idea is that um, most of the time you're not even going to have malicious activity. Um, like if you think about it, how many times in a day, Do you see 51% attacks happening on proof of work on the Bitcoin blockchain? Or how many times even in a month do you see like a 51% attack happening? Um, So why not have a fast lane slowly? All
2: right. Uh, Two sentence version of
1: Algorand. Um, So Algorand is actually, I hear, changing their protocol. But the the protocol that we have in the paper um, is... Okay. The unique part of the protocol is basically um, how do you enable people to have um, to be proposers, but hide the fact that they're proposers until they actually send the message. Okay. Um, so, so secret proposers.
2: Secret proposers. Okay. So there's a a, a lottery that randomly elects proposers uh, in a way that no one can tell in advance. Yep. Okay. And
1: cool. And fun fun part that's patented.
2: Oh, that's always delightful. <laughs> uh, okay, and then uh, give me the two-sentence version of DFINITY.
1: Um With DFINITY, it's like, how do we, in a verifiable, decentralized way, use randomness to select uh, people who are part of the committee and proposers? DFINITY and Algorand, I feel like, were p- pretty similar, apart from uh, how they chose proposers. and Basically, Definity um, has this other, like, really interesting process by which uh, they keep the blockchain growing, and then also have a committee of people like finalizing the blockchain. So, kind of like uh, an in between of FFG and Algorand.
2: Got it. Cool. So, in general, so we've talked a lot about these, some of these different consensus protocols, and you know, it, it also to some degree remains to be seen when we actually put some of these newer consensus protocols into practice in the wild, how they stack rank against each other in practice. Um, but how do you think in general about the trade-off between decentralization and scalability of consensus?
1: So that's actually a really, really interesting question. Um, and I think like just decentralization is as, as a term is very, very subtle. Like, decentralization could mean lots of things decentralization at the network level um so does anyone keep track of the data do you want any uh, anyone to be able to be a full node um then there's like decentralization at the leader level like uh who has the authority to um add and create blocks to the blockchain or then there's like decentralization at the verification level. So who has the ability to um, validate transactions or che- check that they verify. Um, and then there's also decentralization at the governance or software level in terms of like who has the ability to update and control the software um, at, at the governance layer. Um, and I think when uh, people talk about like decentralization versus scalability, it's a lot more nuanced than, um, people think. And of course the intuition is that the more decentralization, the less scalability you have, but in a sense, you can have decentralization at one of these levels, um, and centralization at other levels to speed up the process or like have it be as scalable as your use case or your system needs. Um, and of course, when you, you're thinking about scalability, you want to reduce like the number of people talking to the number of people. Um, if you're able to reduce like the number of messages that are uh, going through your system, obviously your system or protocol can scale a lot faster. Um, yeah.
2: Okay. So, you know, what is there a degree of scalability that you think would be too high that it would make decentralization jeopardized? And and can you maybe talk about why or why not?
1: Well, here's the thing. I think um, decentralization, again, is a spectrum, and it's not a binary. Um, so oftentimes when people are talking about decentralization, um, proof of stake in and of itself um, might be, like, in a way less decentralized than uh, proof of work because less... Like, for example, if you take the case of um tendermint, uh only people who have the ability to like write very good validator software can go ahead and be these validators so in that sense of um who has the ability to add blocks to the blockchain and who has the ability to verify blocks um you're you are way less decentralized um I do think that. Asking yourself what degree of decentralization and why you want decentralization, which layer you want this decentralization at, is a more important question than, um, than just asking like decentralization versus scalability, or at what point are you not decentralized? Because it's all just a spectrum.
2: That's fair. So, last question.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um so for for a lot of these uh, newer consensus protocols that are being developed, the goal is very explicitly to scale the throughput of blockchains um, but of course, consensus is not the only constraint on scalability even um, it, it can It can well be the case that you can massively increase the the throughput for ordering transactions, but applying those transactions to a state machine can be much much slower. So what do you foresee if we can actually get? really high throughput really high highly scalable you know excellent properties in a consensus protocol what do you think are the other things we should be paying more attention to that are limits on blockchain scalability
1: yeah that's a great question i think when people often think about scalability um, right now, we don't even know what we mean by scalability. Like there's so much disagreement on that. Like, does it merely mean like increasing transactions per second? Um, Does scalability also have like the storage consideration in mind, like reducing the amount of data that different nodes hold? Um, I personally feel like it should. Um, In traditional systems, when you're thinking about scalability, you're usually thinking about like as number of users, adopt this part uh, product uh, uh, grow can this uh, product like sustain itself or do we need to like think about another protocol again um and i think all of these are quite important questions when thinking about scalability um and i think that's why it makes a lot more sense to like parameterize scalability in terms of um not just throughput but also like latency um storage um and all these different things but also across different layers of blockchains so you have the consensus layer uh you also have like the civil control layer you also have like the application layer and then you have the hardware and um network layer um and when you're thinking about scalability you definitely want to be thinking about it at all these layers um you also do want to be thinking about Separating um, storage from execution um, when when you think of scalability.
2: Awesome. Well, I think that's all the questions I had, uh, Eric. You want to take it?
0: Yeah, yeah I have a, a couple, and um, this one's for both of you actually. So you were just talking about um, decentralization apart a couple minutes ago, um, and how it's on a spectrum. I'm curious what you would say to sort. I think the counter is, "Hey, um, you know, it's." it's by uh you know decentralization is binary this is what bitcoin maximalist say and everything else is, is not decentralized enough and i guess what's sort of the strongest version of, of their argument and then i think i think that the counter to that is if if decentralization is um binary well define what it means uh or like define exactly what it means and then i think we get into uh a pretty difficult territory where people are you know like sort of hand-waving saying the word decentralization maybe they mean you know, censorship resistance specifically or, or tamper resistance specifically or you know, distribution of <laughs> political power specifically. So I guess, how do you make, make sense of this? Like how should we, we're sort of in a semantic pickle. Um, how should we use or not use the word decentralization?
1: Um, I mean, like when Bitcoin maximalists argue that Bitcoin is decentralized, I've, I'm always like, uh, mining pools. Like, <laughs> have you not thought about that is- Is that, like, not a thing that you think about on a regular basis? Um, But I think when people are thinking about decentralization um, or permissionless, they essentially, like, are thinking of a few important properties, which is basically, one, can anyone, like, join my system and leave my system at any point of time? Um, Can they, like become a participant who maintains the network, um, with ease, or is that difficult? Um, and when I say that, can my grandma become a participant, right? Like if you're thinking about true decentralization, I would always, and you're trying to think of it as a binary, I would say, okay, well then ask yourself, can my grandma be a maintainer of this network? If she can't, your system's not decentralized.
2: The way that I think about that question uh, is… Do like
1: the whole binary definition.
2: Yeah. The way I think about that question is, you know, decentralization is kind of a, kind of a boogeyman a little bit where it's this, it's this, it's this big, way, vague word that kind of encompasses whatever the speaker wants it to mean at any given time. Um, there's this great uh, blog post, I think, by Eliezer Yudkowsky, where he describes the best way to get at the heart of a disagreement about some really big, important word is to stop using that word and only use other words to describe the crux of the disagreement. And so if you, if you didn't use the word, if you didn't know the word, de- the word decentralization, how would you describe what it is you're trying to point at? Right? Is it the the censorship resistance, or in other words, you know, the the ability of anybody to write to this ledger? Is it the resistance to double spends that you care about? Is it the fact that anybody can run a node if they so choose that you care about? And ultimately, the, whichever aspects of that quote-unquote decentralization, um, you know, which of those are important isn't really up to, you know, I can't really say. Look, this this version of, of decentralization isn't important because ultimately that's decided by the community of people who use that that blockchain, right? I mean, blockchains ultimately represent the users who decide to use it and whatever values they have, whether they actually, whether those values actually result in economic um, value or not. Ultimately, if, if people really, really care about one specific form of decentralization over another, um, then, you know, they're, they're going to fight for that chain to have that property. And in effect, that, that property will become valuable by virtue of what users choose based on that property. So that's the way that I think about decentralization: is that it's more of a, it's almost more of an empirical thing of what do people care about, and whatever it is that they care about will be what they call decentralization. Whatever people don't care about. So you know, one example is almost mining pools. You could argue that in a sense, well, people don't really seem to care that much about mining pools, in that they they use Bitcoin, they say it's the most decentralized thing, and the fact that you know Bitmain, their you know their aggregate uh, hash rate of over all their mining pools is something like somewhere above forty percent um and you know at times it's dipped above 50%. Um you know it doesn't really seem to bother people. So in some sense it seems like well that is sufficiently decentralized for people to think it's decentralized.
0: Yeah. Um apart in in doing this this work and this research uh, I'm curious if there are specific you know consensus protocols that you, you've become most sympathetic to uh, or or broadly even how you've changed your mind if at all or how you're thinking on some of this stuff has evolved um as you've you know gone deeper and deeper into the research
1: yeah um i think like initially when i started the research um i was i was pretty like excited about all these academic protocols and i was like wow there's are revolutionary like i've never read anything like them in my life uh they're going to change the world um but what i did realize over time is that like I don't know if there's any perfect protocol and in fact to me, I feel like Bitcoin was in a sense, a perfect protocol because it has a thesis of why it needed to exist, which is censorship free payments at a global scale, Um, which is why like talking about scalability for Bitcoin makes sense um, because you know if a payment system needs to scale, what properties that system needs to have, Um, and then you can think about like what the end goal is, um, on the contrary, I think like development with a lot of these protocols, um, is about like building some new platform, but the use case for any of these protocols is still very unclear. Um, and although there are lots of like DAP use cases, um, the. A lot of these use cases require very different properties. Like, so, a certain app might need more scalability. A certain other app might need more privacy. Uh, and just building out these protocols um, without a clear like use case or thesis in mind, um, I think, is something that I'm not sure what any of these are going to be used for. But it's definitely exciting to see all the work because. Maybe we'll build it out, and then we'll realize that there are a whole lot of use cases that can be built for these protocols.
0: Yeah. is um can you talk a little bit more about um, the biggest misconceptions you think people have um, as they think about scalability uh, or blockchain scalability broadly, and uh, what's like one thing you want them to or your audience to to really understand um, about it maybe in this episode?
1: Uh, in terms of blockchain scalability.
0: Yeah. Um, well, where do they make the top, most mistakes?
1: Well, I think most people right now seem to think that uh that consensus layer is the only thing that needs to be solved if you want a really scalable blockchain, um, which is where all the work currently is. Um, if you if you really think about it, even like um state channels or um sharding, they're all work on the blockchain protocol level. Um, but no one's really thinking about the network level or the hardware level. Um, and I think if you want a truly, truly scalable system, uh, someone needs to also be thinking about like how these messages are gossiped around or like what hardware we're going to be using, um, in like talking to these different protocols. Um, and it's definitely fascinating seeing all the research at the blockchain level, but I think a key takeaway is um, definitely think outside of just the consensus protocol level this
0: question both of you if there was sort of a request for products that you guys had or a request for uh, like where you want people to innovate as it relates to consensus protocols or or, or broadly within um, like scalability what, what would you say where do you want people to to be building or, or experimenting yeah. or tinkering
1: um, I want to see a lot more experiments on like one, actually like figuring out um what network layer of bottlenecks we have and actually like first building out these systems because I think uh it's only right now in theory all of these systems are great scalability solutions, but practically once them out, I don't know how much scalability solution they're gonna be. Um I do want people to like experiment and be validators or like be um miners for these different systems to test what scalability um, issues they run into once they're practically deployed. I think while people are thinking like theoretical research, um, they should also consider like looking into application layer scalability um, or even like the how they can build more scalable hardware or how they can build um, better gossip network protocols
2: so i I definitely agree with that I think um although you know I get really excited about consensus protocols, ultimately, a ton of investment and brain power has gone into looking at consensus protocols over the last couple of years, and uh most of the things that have been explored haven't really had time to be fully baked and come you know get launched and actually be tested out in the wild. but my guess is that we we we've already invested a ton into that side of scalability, but there are other elements of scalability that haven't been as widely addressed. So if you just look at, you know, even, um, you know, uh, uh, looking at the, the virtual machines of some of these smart contract layers, uh looking at the networking layer, looking at the hardware layer, um, a lot of, a lot of different aspects of scalability have just been almost entirely neglected. Either one, because they tend to be more project specific or second, because they're just not as sexy or not as obvious how to monetize them by starting a fancy new blockchain and raising a bunch of money um so i would i would definitely mirror aparna's sentiment there that i'd like to see more experimentation at different layers in the stack um because ultimately focusing all of our attention on just one layer is going to end up us scaling the consensus layer
0: and then having everything else be the bottleneck yeah,
1: yeah.
0: um for in, in to, to sort of wrapping up here for um I'll uh, sort of separate the audience into two groups. People who are, uh, you know, able to follow along and had, had some, you know, prior understanding or, or could can make sense of what we were discussing and, and folks who are new to the space and, uh, this was, this was above them, but they, uh, are, are eager and curious to, to catch up. W- what sort of reading material would, uh, for people who want to go deeper, uh, in this stuff for, for the first group and then for the second group, people who sort of want to, want to catch up. W- what would you, what would you recommend to, to both those groups?
1: Yeah. So for people who are already like pretty deep in the space, um, I would say like join the mechanism labs telegram. We have a lot of very interesting discussions on it. Um You can find the link on our GitHub um, and you can find great communities of other people who are working on similar projects or looking for teams of people to work on projects with. Um, if you join our telegram or follow us on Twitter, Um, At mechanism labs Um, for people who are still very new and are um, getting up to speed Um, I would definitely recommend reading some of our blogs. We write some really good introductory blogs Um, I do like um, like Julian's blogs Um, I like um, crypto economics from Josh Stark's blogs, uh, basically all of L 4s blog series. Um, join ETH Research. ETH Research has some really cool work going on. Um, also, do just like um, join join the Mechanism Labs Telegram group. Yep,
0: awesome. Who who is Julian you mentioned? We'll put him in the show. Oh,
1: Julian Co from Metastable. Cool. Or like um, who, or even like um, Blockchain in the Berkeley blogs um there are very very like, interesting blogs in the blockchain space um john Bacchus's blog posts um metallics blog posts uh all of these are are very like interesting cool. and introspective yeah
0: anything you'd add to that Zeb? uh
2: probably the one like the mother load of place to go for blog posts is uh look at vitalik's old blog posts on the ethereum foundation website um if you just read everything that vitalik has ever written you will basically be a like a world class expert on this stuff. Um, although those, those, to be clear, those are very technical. So if you don't have a technical background, um, then I don't I don't really know what I. If you don't oh. have a technical background, I don't know what I'd recommend. so far as learning about consensus protocols, other than maybe some good YouTube videos, just you know, kind of building up your intuition about uh, uh, Nakamoto consensus.
1: Oh, for non-technical people, here, here are a couple of good blogs. Um, one is Ashley Lankwist's intro to blockchain. Um, then there's also a paper that was recently published by Andrew Glidden. Um, like approaching Bitcoin and blockchain from a more like legal standpoint.
0: Guys, it's been a f- fantastic episode. Uh, where can people find you, uh, on the internet? And, um, where can, uh, you know, what should people stay tuned for?
1: So you can find me on Twitter at AparnaLocked. Um, and stay tuned for a lot of work coming from Mechanism Labs. We're recently focused a lot on incentive design and scalability. We have a new scalability framework coming out. We also have a lot of very cool work on the incentive design side coming out soon. And if you're interested in contributing or being part of more cool research. Um, just stay tuned and join the Mechanism Labs
2: team. Yeah, and I was Haseeb Qureshi. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, just to show my name. And uh, I'd say stay tuned for Mechanism Labs. I think what is doing is super awesome and love to see more people working on stuff like this in the crypto space.
0: Awesome. Thanks so much, guys.
1: Thanks for having us, Eric.
0: If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check out more at www.villageglobal.vc.
1: We'd love to learn more about what you're up to.